Welcome to the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. Join host Dr. Stefan Dillinger for lively discussions with leading epigenetics researchers. Hear about their past experiments, what they're working on now, and what's coming next. You know their papers, now get to know them and discover the stories behind the science. Hello and welcome to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast. Today I'm happy to welcome Luciano Di Croce from the Center of Genomic Regulation in Barcelona on this show. Luciano, please let me briefly introduce you to our audience. Uh, you got your PhD in 1996 from the Department of Cellular and Developmental Biology at the University of Rome. From 1996 to 2000, you did a postdoc at the University of Marburg and then moved to the European Institute of Oncology in Milan to become senior investigator. In 2003, you moved to Barcelona to the Center for Genomic Regulation to become ICREA research professor and group leader. And since 2021, you are also co-coordinator of the Gene Regulation Stem Cells and Cancer Program at the CRG. A question I like to ask every guest to start off our little podcast show is, um, how did you become interested in biology in the first place and then in pursuing a career in science? So well, let me say hi to everybody listening. And uh, thanks a lot for an invitation to be part of this podcast. I've been listening uh, many of the, of the podcast. And um, so with respect to your question, um, how did I start? So why I got interested in uh, doing biology, right? That's your question. So um, it's, I've been thinking about that because, as I said, I've been listening to some of the podcasts. I was expecting this question. And um, <clears throat> so I I went back and tried to recollect why I started, uh, why I decided to do biology. And I must confess that um, when I uh, when I was a kid, um, we were living in, uh, in a kind of country house. So we were in, in a city, but a bit outside of the city. Yeah? So we were embedded in the nature. So I was actually, we had a lot of free time and I was very often in the, in the wildness, in the forest, in, in the, with trees and so on. And I was very captured by the fact that, you know, there was ant walking us in line one after the other one. I said, why did they follow one each other? Which I, how did they communicate, right? They communicate like us. And then I saw different type of life, like for example, flowers blooming, blooming uh, simultaneously across the whole hills. So even the plants talk actually between itself how they coordinate this. So the many things that actually instigated my curiosity, and that was something that maybe staying in the back of my mind. And then in the high school, I did a completely different thing. I studied Greek, Latin for five years, Latin, five years, Greek, philosophy, and I disregarded a little bit uh, scientific topics, right? I did very little biology, chemistry, and other uh, mathematics. And then at the, at the point, then I finished my high school and then I had to decide the university what to do. And I said, actually, I really, I'm, I like Greek, Latin and philosophy, but that's not something that really engaged me so much. Maybe I should opt for something different. And I was wandering between physics, physics and biology. So I attended a few of the classes at the very beginning. At the same time, I was lucky that I could delay my subscription to one of, one, one of the tips. A different type of university and I was following the class in physics mathematics and in parallel uh, uh, biology uh, molecular biology and you know after two three weeks I realized that you know I was pretty much captured by those topics about biology 
And that's what I did. Then I started biology. And then, as you mentioned, then my career moved from PhD. Uh, I did a university in Rome, then PhD also started in Rome, and then moved to Germany for my first postdoc, second postdoc in Italy. And then since 2003, I am in Barcelona. So, yeah, it's, it's one thing to get interesting, interested by nature, the biology and everything. But it's another thing to think about a career in science, right? I mean, uh, did you... I mean, for me, it was like, yeah, now I start my PhD and I know that, or I, I start studies at the, at the university and until I get my PhD, it's like 10 years later at minimum, right? So, uh, and, and you are committing yourself to like a 10-year career path and then you will ultimately know if that's the right thing for you, right? So so how did you, did you plan that or how did you then know that, that it would be the right thing or were you already like committed too much that you couldn't go back? <laughs> yeah. Actually, I've been thinking about that also recently for, for other reasons that I won't mention here. Uh, I think back then we were kamikaze. So we were really, so we were following uh, uh, one example, which was the professor in, by, in uh, the university, which the professor has a lab with few person, right? And they say, I want to be like, like this person. And in the case, it was uh, my former professor was Anna Trentalance from the University of Rome. And uh, she really impressed me for the way in which she was dedicated to science, both teaching and running the lab. And then for me, it was just one way. There were no alternative path, which is not the case nowadays. As we know, there are many alternative paths and, and, uh, and students nowadays are much more aware of the alternatives. At that time, we were not. That's why we were like maybe a bit more narrow-minded. And uh, as I say, coming at the way, and I was lucky because I know the chance to become PI and run your own lab in more or less successful way is they're very slim. And I was lucky that I was. I am one of those. So let's talk about uh, your work and your science um, that centers around roughly epigenetic epigenetic events in cancer. Um, you are, as we are discussed, uh, in science for almost 20 years now and have accumulated quite a number of publications. So I will try to find a way to look at your work from maybe also a bigger perspective. Mm. So let's start with a science publication out of the year 2002. Um, <laughs> uh, there you reported that the leukemia-promoting PMLRAR fusion protein induces gene hypermethylation and silencing by recruiting DNA methyltransferases to target promoters and that hypermethylation contributes to its leukogenic potential. Um, could you talk about this fusion protein and what you found in the study and maybe why you started out um, investigating this? Yeah, yeah, actually this was one of the important moments of my scientific life and was <clears throat> when I started my second postdoc. Let, just let me recap. So I did my first postdoctoral stage in Marburg in Germany, as you just mentioned, in the lab of uh, Miguel Beato, a very uh, famous, prominent uh, scientist, in uh, Spanish scientist, but did all his career outside of Spain. And I joined his lab, and the work was mainly done, uh, the work we performed there was mainly in vitro work. So we started in nucleosome positioning using Drosophila reconstitution system, poor in vitro progesterone receptor, uh, and other co-activators. Completely in vitro, no no cell uh, were involved. Everything was in vitro, and we progressed quite a lot, understanding how the hormone receptor bind to specific site on on uh, on a chromatin on the nucleosome structure, right? And but then I decided to apply this very much mechanistic insight into a more biological context. And then when I moved to Milan at the European Institute of Oncology and the lab of Pietro Sepp 
And in his lab, there was mainly uh, the main topic was leukemia. So and then I tried to combine the chromatin aspect I learned in Germany with the leukemia uh, paradigm that uh, I, I had available there. So they were, um, the knowledge uh, in the religious lab of leukemia was very high. Actually, was one of the first in the cloning the PMR-alpha uh, translocation, which is a, um, a chromosomal translocation which involved PML gene and retinoic acid receptor. So the reason also why I chose the lab, because with Miguel Beato in Germany, I was working on a progesterone receptor, one, one transcription factor which, which belonged to the larger family of hormone receptor. And in this case, the oncogenic event, which uh, drive leukemia, is a fusion between not progesterone receptor, but another family member, which is a retinoic acid receptor, together with the female. So the chromosomal... <coughs> Um, translocation leads to PML fused to retinoic acid receptor, the chimeric protein, which is made by the junction of these two different moiety, the PML and retinoic acid receptor, has some aberrant characteristic, right? And that's what I want to study. So I can recover all my chromatin expertise on the hormone receptor and the binding of specific tracheal factor on the genome within a larger and maybe more interesting context, which is the leukemia. And that's when we started. So, and then start to characterize the function of this chimeric protein, PMR alpha. And uh, I wonder whether I can find some novel interactor. And looking for intera- novel interactor, we could explain the aberrant function of this tracheal uh, of the uh, chimeric protein. Then I encountered the methyl transferases, which was very interesting. It was the first time that I was really exposed to the epigenetic field. Because, you know, I mean, you know, and I think people listening to this podcast also know that DNA methylation is one of the two main epigenetic memory systems. DNA methylation and polycomplexity are the two uh, classical uh, cellular memory systems. So then uh, I started performing a set of experiments, which then confirmed that actual interaction between this oncogenic transcription factor, the chimeric protein PMR alpha, together with the neamethyl transferases, leads to an aberrant silencing. In that case, it was 2022, and it was a science paper, but was based on, uh, on the limited set of target genes. So at the time, there was no chipsec, there was no RNA-6, there was, uh, it was not on blood, <laughs> single, single, single locus analysis by the methylation primer. So we were looking at few, let's say, few known target of the oncomeric uh, transcription factor, and we realized there was an aberrant accumulation of the methylation. That started the link between the cancerogenesis process and aberrant uh, uh, methylation, specifically brought in specific place by the tracheal factors. So um, what you are now describing is the part that puts the methylation on the DNA. But the next step was also that you followed up on the study by investigating the function of proteins that read the methylation, right? So the MBD1 and MBD3. Um, so what is the function of these two proteins then in the process? Uh, those actually, those are, it's a linked uh, story. And let's say well, you can also say a follow-up story. Then, uh, then once we know that you know the oncogenic transcription factor of PMR alpha can apparently recruit in a methyl transferases on specific place of the genome to add this methyl mark, which actually is a very small mark. It's just um, a methyl mark is like you would not really um, would not affect the structure of the chromatin if it's not by the for the fact that it is recognized by our readers, right? In this case, the readers are the protein that you just mentioned called uh, MBD proteins, which stand for methyl binding domain containing proteins, a family of several factors, including MBD1, MBD2, MBD3. 
and some of them are part in, of a larger complex, like, like the GNUD complex, and the other can work in isolation, like, uh, like MBD1. So what this protein does, MBD1 read and binds to the methylated CPGs and start recruiting additional cofactor, usually a co-repressor like HDAC enzyme. And that really brings the silencing on the locus. So the material itself is not really, uh, does not really repress. It's actually guide the binding of other factor like MBD protein, which then brings additional proteins. And this actually leads to full uh, repressive locus and maybe also compaction. That's something that people are studying uh, in follow-up studies. Um, what you're maybe currently most known for, at least this is <laughs> my view of you, of your, of, of you and your work, um, is polycomb polycom group proteins. Um, and how did you then make the link between the DNA methylation, the, uh, the PML proteins, the MBD proteins, then to the polycom group proteins? Yeah, that's actually... Um, and again, that, that we started um, working and again when as I mentioned before. So we were looking for interactor of PMR alpha, and we realized that the you know, methyl transferases were among the protein which were co-immunoprecipitated with PMR alpha. But also we found other protein like uh, polycom proteins, right? And that time, let me tell you that um, and the protein that we found was actually SH2, and SH2 was known to be uh, a polycom protein, right? And was part of the epigenetic memory system, was I mentioning before. But that time, we still had no clue that actually was a protein which could lead to methylation lysine 27, which now the function of, of polygon, everybody knows, is like methylate, monomethylate, dye, and trimethylate lysine 27, right? So it was a set containing enzyme, so enzyme which contained the set domain, which potentially can really catalyze the methylation, but an experiment indicated that actually was not enzymatically active. And the reason why SH2 was not enzymatically active because many of the experiments were done in vitro with isolated protein, just with SH2. And nowadays, we know in order for SH2 to be active, you need other protein called Suswalve and DEG, which are the core component of the RC2 complex. So we know what's implicated in, in, uh, in epigenetic me mechanism. We didn't know what's linked to it based on postulational modification. And then from there, I start interacting with... Uh, I was liking that I was in, as I said, I was at the Institute of European Oncology, and um, there was Pellici, was uh, was recruited me there. But side by side in the same institute was Christian Ellen, which was an expert on uh, polygon proteins. And then starting discussing with him, we plan a set of experiment, and that's led to the identification of, of uh, and then let me actually get interested and in uh, polycom itself. And then when I moved to Barcelona, <clears throat> I decided to put more emphasis on polycom protein rather than on uh, PML alpha uh, uh, AML type of leukemias. Which is something that now maybe if we discuss, maybe if we have time to discuss at the end, something that I'm recovering the leukemic part of my former leukemic background, and we are performing more and more uh, investigation and studies on, on leukemia, connecting leukemia with uh, epigenetics. Yeah, so um, on my list of things to discuss, I have like two other proteins, and maybe we can first focus on the other and then uh, the other. Um, so there is uh, ZRF1. Um, you started to work on, on it in 2010. Um, this was also a nature paper, so a very successful work of, of your um, lab. Maybe we can also discuss uh, later on uh, when we have like 
talked about your science, how to get papers published in Nature. <laughs> um, uh, so you looked at the SETRF1 and its role in transcriptional silencing. Um, so what did you find there? So we find we were looking for protein which would recognize H3 monoamicutination in 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 the vitro system, and we found that ZRF1 actually was a very uncharacterized protein. Actually, it was it was linked to ribosomal translation. We'll we look a bit more in the distribution. We found actually it was also present in the nucleus, which actually was was interesting, and we start performing some uh, some additional study, and actually we we showed that actually. Uh, recognize H2 monoubiquitinated using affinity uh, chromatography. So um, uh, the, the problem with that is that the, the reagent we had where, uh, where an antibody we generate and the antibody available on the market were actually were really poor and we cannot really advance much on that on, on that aspect. So we characterize a bit of binding but the time again was not We try different antibody, and as you know from Actimotive, that you know you really need good antibody if you want your project to succeed. Without good reagent, without any type of reagent, then the project will not uh, will not fly. So what we found is that it's um, in a set of follow up. So in a set of follow up studies, we will also look at the function of the more physiological function of ZF1 in uh, brain development, and that was done in collaboration with a group in Milan. Um, and <clears throat> we realized actually this protein is important for proper um, neuronal differentiation. And more recently, uh, I then I said that the postdoc left the postdoc that was driving the project left my lab, and then he took the project with with him. That that's something that uh, many of my former postdoc they do, and I'm very happy. And I'm of course they, they still get all my support, but they're very uh, very very they take the project and then develop their own career. And um, in that case. Uh, Later data from 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 Olger, which was the, the the postdoc driving the project in my lab, and from other labs, suggests also a potential link between ZF1 and DNA damage, which is very interesting because DNA damage both sides are also um, modified by the H2 ubiquitin. So there is something more. Maybe um, it's there is a link with polycom within uh, general regulation, but also might be a link with DNA damage. And then something that, as I said, I'm, I'm not, uh, I, I didn't follow up uh, because uh, all that was continued. Then we'll, let's move on to to uh, PHF19. This protein is also part of the PRC complex. Um, so what was your motivation to focus on this uh, specific protein? Um, yes, let me recall. This project was started by Martin Langer, um, a German postdoc, and it joined my lab i think it was like 2010 more or less and uh, <clears throat> we were um we were looking into interactome of prc2 uh, complex right so at that point so nowadays we know prc2 is mainly formed the prc2.1 and prc2.2 depending on which uh, the subunit together with the core subunit are assembled right And at that point, we thought PRC2 was just a single, a single uh, entity, right? And uh, GRE2 was part of PRC2 complex. Uh, um, 
ADP2 was part of PRC2 complex and the other subunit were part of PRC2 complex, right? So we identified this one as a novel interactor for PHF19. So we purified PRC2 complex and we identified this one as a novel subunit of the PRC2 complex. <clears throat> and then we realized actually that there were three family members like uh, called PHF1, uh, PHF19, MTF2. Nowadays, the new nomenclature is PCL1, PCL2, PCL3, which is much simpler, <coughs> and PHF19 actually is PCL3. So we were, and it's a very interesting set of domains, and when uh, Martin uh, brought this to my attention, I, we look at domain structure of the project, which contains chromatodomain, domain, a central homology domain, two PhD domain. So all domain we have something to do with chromatin and say, we have to study this protein. <laughs> it's too it's too interesting. There's so many domains. So I say, and then I say, but where will we start? You know, all these domains actually can read this modification, can bind, can generate protein interaction. Where do we start? And then say, okay, I have an idea. So let's contact uh, Orgozani. That time was performing a macro array with uh, where it in in, in in I say blocked on a, on a, on a surface different ISO modification and use this array for screening for domains as all many recombinant domain to see which domain actually bind to this modification. So you can you can actually. Um, screen many domains at the same time. That's what we did. All the domain of, uh, of PCL3, we read, uh, expressed recombinantly, and we hybridized this domain with this, with this array of uh, modifications. And, we're, and then we realized, oh, K36, dying trimethylation strongly bind to the Tudor domain of protein. Oh, that's already a hint. So there might be some link between the Tudor domain of uh, PHF19 Right, which interact with PRC2 complex and link to the function of PRC2 complex, right? And that's where the project started. But also that posed a paradox because we know that polygon is a repressor, right? And K36 dye tramethylation mainly present activity. So how do we reconcile these two aspects? And that was the tough part, actually one of the most difficult parts that um, um, the reviewer were asking, say, can you really put in a global scenario, in a more general scenario, the function of this novel interactor PRC2 within the context of gene silencing gene application and creation. So then uh, I say, okay, well, let's do one step back. Let's see whether this binding that or uh, Gozani suggested actually can we com confirm this by some orthogonal method, right? And then we contacted uh, Maria Teresa Carlomagno. I think at that time she was uh, the, she was at NBL. I, I think she's no longer there. And she's an expert in NMR, so in protein structure, and say, can you help us and try to see whether there is really binding? Can we really visualize this binding by NMR, right? And, and then she came up with a beautiful structure, NMR structure, which was then also confirmed by crystal structure by other, by other groups. So, you know, Young Shi has published a more complete uh, set of the protein of, of PCL3, of PHF19, with, within, uh, trimethylated, uh, lysine 36 together with, the, with, uh, CPG stretch of DNA. And so we realized actually, this protein has so many domains, and all of them actually can be a different part of the genome or histone modification. For example, the, the CPGs, unmethylated CPG stretch, histone modification. So it's a kind of can, a kind of integrator of signal for deciding where PRC2 has to bind, right? And that rendered the scenario a bit more complex, but also much more exciting because now you know you have all these possible signal coming from different points and then you have to integrate in, in and that allow polygon decide where to bind, where not to bind. Or maybe 
minds is stronger affinity, less affinity in many different places. And there are two anchor points. The mind is stronger, the resident time is higher, and that can actually do active catalyzation, uh, catalyzing of K2 savage from methylation. So how can you, can one imagine that? Because HDK36 uh, methylation is like an active mark, as you said, it's a uh, It's a spread across like the gene body of actively transcribed genes. Then you have H3K27 trimethylation, which is like the, the uh, inactive mark that PRC2 would would uh, put on the genome. Are yeah, those yeah. are those uh, marks then on the same nucleosome? Are they like in different domains? Would they bind like in on two ends of the uh, complex? Or how would can and then there is DNA methylation, right? How does this all play together? Do we have a, a like a picture of that? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's best. So put all together, it's of course it's very complicated, and uh, we make we make our hypothesis and our model in our mind, which I guess that were wrong anyway. And um, the, the, what I think, and that actually there were two two papers almost on the same issue issue about the same with the same data. So with uh, PJ Fantin, actually the other papers were with other family members. So we, I think we we another group that was Adrian. Was published on Adrian Bracken, was published on uh, PCL3, binding this modification, but there were other groups but working on PCL2 and PCL1, which would be very similar. So the three family members have very, very conserved function in, 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 this, uh, in this respect. So, um, as I said, there is a good high affinity for trimethyl uh, K36 and also for dimethyl K36. Trimethyl K36 is mainly in the, in the gene body. And at the point we, we thought that. Uh, a bit like in uh, in a um, lower organism that maybe you want to prevent uh, cryptic transcription start site within the gene body. So you know when polymerase goes through 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 uh, coding sequence, what it does is just remove nucleosomes, right? And when there are no nucleosomes, maybe some cryptic transcription start site now is free and then actually can be recognized and make it start transcribing. And you, in order to prevent that, that maybe you can do, you can specifically recruit polycom in those places to prevent spurious transcription start site within the coding sequence. That was one possibility. The other one that we favor, and we have some evidences in, in, in that direction, is that actually this might be important for resilencing genes after activations. So you do have dimethylation. Trimethylation is more abundant, actually, much more abundant within the gene body. Dimethylation actually spread into the promoter. And affinity for dimethyl and trimethyl, they were quite comparable. And they say maybe actually what's really matter here is recruiting polycom at promoter region by anchoring on the dimethyl K36 And that would lead to kind, the kind of favoring reestablishing the silencing on those promoters once activation or the decryption part, which would lead to activation that promoter is gone, right? That would allow promoter to be silenced again in a more stable manner. And that's the, um, the model that we favor, that model. So kind of a feedback loop, uh, not to get too much transcription and, and things like that. Exactly. Once the main act player that, leads to promoter activation is gone for any reason the scription part is no longer there because it become degraded or become captured somewhere else in the genome. These promoters still have this mark, but there is not a driver of the activation anymore. And maybe Polycom can sense this and then go there and start rebuilding a repressing environment around this promoter. But I cannot exclude also the spurious transcriptional uh, star site uh, silencing that also might be also part of the equation. 
it's nice to study all the function and mechanisms, but it's also important to um, study the role of those proteins in like the biological context like um, prostate cancer cells um, leukemia cells as you said you are circling back to your original starting point so um, what did you find out when investigating the role of PHF19 and PRC2 in those um, systems and you also go I think you looked at mouse hematopoietic precursor cells yeah yeah so we actually we are now we are um, as I said at the beginning, I said I started leukemia when I was in my second postdoctoral stage, and then um, and then uh, we start focusing on more on the mechanistic aspect of, of polygon, try to understand how polygon act in the mouse embryonic stem cells, how they are important for for differentiating. Actually, here you didn't. I want to just uh, bring up one thing that we we realized that then when you need to differentiate mouse embryonic stem cells, right, into different uh, cell type. Uh, we wonder whether the polygon complex change between undifferentiated and differentiated cells. Is, so that's the, because polygon has many possible variations. PRC1 and PRC2 can be assembled in many different ways, right? Just for example, you can have PCL1, PCL2, PCL3 that you can do different, but the combination or combinatorial possible assembly are immense. Right. Alone, alone the, the targeting, that, right? Alone the targeting to specific alone, um, sites. Exa exactly, exactly, exactly. So, for example, for PRC1, you can have ring 1A or ring 1B into the PRC1 complex, but you can have CDX7 or CDX2 or CDX4 or CDX6 or CDX8. So, no, and then, so there are more, and then I mentioned this during my talk, there are more than 200 possible variations only of PRC1 complex. So, at the point we start asking, are these 200 different variations, they all exist? They are cell type specific. They coexist in the same cell type, and uh, they bind to different places of the genome. Do they have different functions, or they are like uh, complementary or like overlapping functions, and so on? So then we addressed um, when Luis Moray was in in, uh, in my lab. Now he's in Miami, and uh, I tried to understand and characterize the, the composition of PRC1 complex and PRC2 later in uh, um, undifferentiated cells and how this change during differentiation. So that's something that actually we, we got uh, very much uh, at, uh, attached to and we start to dissect this as we were pioneering in, in this respect that, that actually you need to assemble this assembled variation of PRC1 complex for balance, pluripotency and differentiation. So if you don't do that, then you don't achieve cell differentiation. You need to remove CBX7 and incorporate CBX2 in order, just, just an example, but then you need to really, really shuffle a lot PRC1 complex, PRC2 complex for proper differentiation. And that's what we start with, with investigated uh, for many years, right? And then as you mentioned, then I got back, circle back to my origin, if you want to say, and then try to reconnect what we learned from the uh, using mouse embryonic stem cells and model system and the capacity of cells on the code differentiation, which are the principle of uh, differentiation, how much polycom is implicated into this, and how much when this goes wrong can lead to cancer. That's why now we are recovering many aspects that we studied at the very beginning when I started the lab, including leukemia and other, other cancer model system. And then respect to what we are what we decided to do. With respect to, for example, to PHF19 or PCL3, and try to understand the role because the original publication uh, was in mouse embryonic stem cells. That when we studied that is a novel interactive PRC2 read K36 trimethylation. Then, but also we ask, so but what's the function of this protein in adult stem cells? 
right? And that's a function that's really is easy to express. And for this, we generate a mouse condition lockout model. And from there, we start a set of experiment. Actually, it was very interesting, and they are still continuous. So, considering that we identified this protein in 2010, 2011, that was Martin Langer that did it. And as soon as we arrived, that was something interesting. We started to characterize and role in mouse embryos themselves, but also we generate the condition knockout model in the classical way. At the time, there was no CRISPR-Cas9 technology where to put the lock side and the rinse was long. <laughs> you like outsourcing the, the clone. And it was like, it took like a couple of years just to get back the ES cells. And then you start generating the mouse model. And then we start characterizing. And indeed, starting around 2017, we have the, the colony was kind of um, growing quite a lot, right? This colony, which lack pitch and we realized we were looking at the phenotype that was appearing that the animal were fertile, were breathing, were happy, were so on. Say, oof, that's the, my first uh, mouse model, no phenotype, so much here inverting that. So oof, I should go back to poor molecular biology. <laughs> and, and then I should say, you know what, we, we stop this research line and we start killing the colony because it is, there's no point. We are we are losing a lot of money you know, having all these animals here. And when we started killing all the animals, we realized that the animals have splenomegaly. Splenomegaly means spleen is much bigger. And say, oh, wait, 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 stop, stop sacrificing the animals. <laughs> so there is something interesting here. And then we have to recover the colony again because we're almost shrink down the colony dramatically. We have to grow the colony again. And, and splenomegaly usually is a sign of defect in the mitoidic system, which is something that we, we were expert at this. Back then we were expert in mitoidic system. And that's where we started looking into the role of pechefrantin in the mitoidic stem cells. And did you, so is this now something that you're investigating or can you say something about, so w when you get cancer, is there a reshuffling of the PRC complex uh, in, the, in the individual components? Um, and yeah, wh what is your path uh, moving forward? Yeah, yeah. For example, and, and this actually is very much linked to, to different story that we uh, publish and many ongoing experiments that uh, we have in the lab. The first one that using prostate cancer model system, uh, we realized that uh, when we remove uh, pH from the cells, the cell, they actually, they, this, their capacity of growing was dramatically reduced. The proliferation rate was dramatically reduced. And then we say, okay, this actually can be interesting, can be can have some therapeutic implication because, you know, if we can find an inhibitor, and against any of the domain, because as I mentioned, there are many domain of pH there are many pockets that we can target, where we can slow uh, cancer growth, right? And, but then we start to do another parallel experiment, but there is another effect on the characteristic of the, of the cells. So apart from uh, stop proliferating, stop proliferating uh, reduce cell cycle, and we'll do RNA-seq, we do some assays, and we actually realize that cells become much more metastatic. So I say, oops, oh no, no, then it's not really a good a good therapeutic advantage. You know, you, you stop the cell to grow, but you increase the potential to form metastasis is something that we, we you don't really want, right? But that also tells you that you know, just changing one little uh, subunit of polygon of many, right? You completely change the character the characteristics of cells. They stop uh, proliferating but become much more metastatic. And we will prove that in uh, in different ways. So really also, this is a kind of warning for 
main of the epigenetic, uh, epigenetic field inhibitor of epigenetic drugs are provided to patient, you know, altering the function even minimally of polycom can really impact on many aspects. And sometimes we cannot really predict all of that. So this should be a warning that in mm-hmm. that direction. So with respect to the metabolic synthesis, with respect to prostate cancer model system, and then uh, going back to the spinomegaly, then we start, you know, this is a defect in the blood system. And we start to analyze a bit more in detail the metabolic themselves, which, uh, which we isolate and we realize that actually in of HF19, the cells, again, like in prostate cancer model system, they be- become much more quiescent, right? So they stop growing. So we're going to talk about the metabolic themselves, which are already quiescent, right? And actually, if you calculate it, I was very much uh, shocked when I we made this calculation that and the metabolic stem cells, which is one the sitting at the top of the metabolic tree and generate all different cell type in the blood. And usually they are called in action only when there is some injury or some some bleeding or some stress. And in the uh, uh, life of a mouse, which is two years, they only replicate four times. So when they, when I mean they are really quiescent, they are really quiescent. They only replicate four times. And that's a fundamental. So when you really need the cells, those are cells which are mobilized for bleeding or when you, when you have other serious damage. So those cells are really quiescent, but when you look at the lack of the salt cells, with the cells which lack PHFNT, they become even more quiescent, right? So you, and that was in line with some data which was produced by Andreas Trump laboratory. And, but also we realized that if you stress the cells, they are, they are really quiescent at the very beginning, but you put stress, they proliferate even more. They not only proliferate more, but actually proliferate even better than what type cells. So, and then this was a kind of, of uh, here of uh, interesting aspect. So they are quiescent, but you pump stress, they can proliferate. But then when you ask them to undergo to, to full differentiation, they cannot differentiate. So then lack of HF19, they say, generate a spectrum of defect, become more quiescent, hyperproliferate, you pump stress, but they cannot undergo to full differentiation. And that would generate a kind of preleukemic state in the animal model. So the animals which lack HF19, it's actually an interesting model because a kind of preleukemic model, and actually we know very little about preleukemia, which are the symptom or the, the stage of it. So when, when a patient comes to the hospital, usually the leukemia is already a frank leukemia, full blood leukemia, right? So can we use this animal model to study the early phase of leukemogenesis? So can we understand that? And can we understand how to identify those? before patients become full leukemic, right? And that's something that we are continuing. So based on these initial uh, studies on characterizing the lack of patient in the in the spleen and then the pathologic system, and it provides us with a model of uh, pre-leukemic uh, animals, right? And now we are understanding much better what is pre-leukemia, combining many more of those sophisticated technology were not available when we started the project like uh, 10 years ago and try to dissect the early steps of uh, leukemogenesis and try also to see whether we can identify in, uh, in, with novel technology. So usually when we finish up the interview, I have two set questions, but maybe I will now switch uh, the first one <laughs> because I want to ask you what is important if you want to land a paper in nature. So if you really want to get to the top-notch uh, yeah. journalists, uh, what is important to keep in mind when planning maybe the project and writing up the manuscript? I must say that it's not something, I mean, you, 
always plan to um, find something new, right? And you always find something new, otherwise we're not called the search, right? And um, the point is that if it is a paradigm shift, if something new is really revolutionized uh, the field, like for example, I was reading like uh, a few days ago, there was a paper in cell that say actually uh, the plant that emits sound, right? Yeah, they are airborne, so and they are informative, so they like, transmit uh, transmit to to the air, right? And they carry information, right? And that is there is before and after. So now we know that plant can talk in a, in a, in a, in a way, in a right? Way, yeah. and, and, and this is a kind of novelty that you that you can aim to publish in in a, in, in, a, in a good journal, top journal. And the top journal, I would not say that it's only science, nature, and cell. There are many good journals, which uh, many of the cell family journal, the science, science advanced, which are uh, excellent, and there are you know. In the, and, and so on, so natural after. So there is a class of journal in, in the top category that is, they give you good visibility and large number of readers. That's what actually, and uh, which is important that your work is actually disseminated, right? And those journals are in, impacted in the sense that there are many readers that actually look at the table of concept of the journals. And that's why people prefer to publish on those journals. Doesn't, doesn't mean that uh, Article publishing in different type of journals, right? Uh, strong impact. Actually, it's maybe at the beginning, a fantastic paper in a smaller journal take more time to be identified. But then, you know, to Twitter and other social media, and then become like a, like a bomb, right? And and that has the same impact than a, a top paper at the end, right? That so that's it. At the moment of writing, I think you have to be inspired and. Um, in, in the way to tell the story, not, not always to be chronological in the way you thought and in the way in which experiment has been done, but also the way in which capture and maybe it's more like a plot story. So to build up a bit of, uh, of expectation and then you solve the, 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 the puzzle at the end. And that, that's one way of writing. That's the way in which I usually prefer to write. But there are many. This is one way. There are many. There are many. So in the last 43 minutes, we have taken a journey through your scientific career. Can you maybe give a short summary about your most important findings or something that we might have missed in this interview? Well, I think we have covered much of, uh, of what we've done. And one thing we didn't mention is um, when we study, we study viral genes, right? And it's something that we published uh, recently in, uh, in Nitrogenetics. And which it's this, this very peculiar set of promoter. I don't know whether you're familiar with it. It's a promoter which contains both active mark and repressive mark, right? So, which means on the same, it's on the same nucleosome or maybe the limit of the chromatin uh, sonication between one or two nucleosomes, you have both ketone-7 trimethylation and ketone-4 trimethylation, right? And uh, it's unclear whether it's on the same, it's very likely it's on the same tail of the ison H3 because both K4 and K27 are ison H3. It's very likely on the same tail. It can be two different tails of the same nucleosome or two, or two adjacent uh, nucleosomes. But anyway, they're pretty much nearby. And we know that K4 trimethylation somehow prevent a bit of polygon function and polygon function prevent engagement of, uh, of uh, MLR complex to promoter. So there is a kind of tug of war between these two complexes, but then why these two marks are together, how they are deposited, 
how they end up together, right? If they, if you have K4, you cannot have K27. So how do you get together? And this is a mystery. But it was also a mystery, the fact that actually um, when you do ChIP-SEC, you take millions of cells. So can, you cannot exclude that actually uh, there are 50% of the cells which have K4, 50% of the cells which have K27, when you do, do together, they seem some the same locus, but they are not. Or if you do single cells, it can be one allele K27, other allele K, K4 trimeter ratio. So, and then we say, okay, can we really, can we really get this, nail this down? And then what we decided to do, we do red chip sec. So first you do chip for one is some modification. We are left very little amount of, of you know, material and use that material as input for the next step. So we did first K4 trimethyl chip, recover the material, and that material, which we know for sure is K4 trimethylation map, we subject to K27 trimethylation chip, right? And then uh, ultra sequencing, uh, next generation sequencing. We were not happy with also can we change exchange order now with the first K27 and K4, so it should be it should be the same, right? And we did all this control. It, the red chip is a very complex uh, approach, and you let uh, at the end you have very limited amount of cells. You have to scale up the experiments a lot, but we really could prove that they are on the same on the same at least nucleosomes. There are the two marks together, and that's that. So it's it is real. It's not just an artifact of taking millions of cells. And but what's the function there, right? And then, uh, and then what we realize that then okay, we cannot assess the function directly because uh, this is a CDC level, and we know there are genes which are important for uh, for development of development or regulated genes for differentiation, and but what we can do, we can uh, remove the enzyme which specifically uh, deposit. Uh, <clears throat> K4 trimethylation at bivalent genes. And we were lucky that Alicia Latifar uh, identified this enzyme, which is MLL2, say, and we interact with Ali and we ask him some reagent antibody and we remove MLL2 and say, now we see what happened if we specifically make this bivalent region monovalent, monovalent, right? So only have K27 trimethylation. And we we'll look into that, and one of the most things that I never thought we would, would have found is that actually the presence of bivalent marks allow the transcription start site to pair with transcription termination site. So you have the genes which are start the promoter, then make a loop, and then transcription termination site end up very close to the, the transcription start site, right? The kind of called unfolding one on top of the other. And for this, you need a bivalent mark. If you prevent the bivalency, then the promoter open apart and you have prescriptions are side and prescriptions side linear. And then you may ask, but why is important that prescriptions are side and termination side are together? This is important for reinitiation because when polymerase travel along the old genes, one end up on termination side is again very near to prescriptions are side again. It can re-engage the promoter side again. So we may, may need some kinetics of the promoter activation and actually bivalent promoter seems to be important. Among other things, I cannot exclude other things on reactivation mm-hmm. for the reinitiation of transcription. And that's something that actually I did not expect to, to find and uh, was a very nice surprise. Yeah, that, that really uh, sounds interesting and worth following up on. It's it's the same with RDNA genes, right? They are also like some some circular exactly. um, construction and then it's, it's the reinitiation um, happens. Yeah, Luciano, thank you for your time and for being on the show. It was really Thanks a lot. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Epigenetics Podcast from Active Motif. 
We hope you enjoyed it. You can find all the mentioned references in the show notes. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on your favorite podcast platform so you never miss an episode. We'd love to hear from you, so please send us your feedback on Twitter, Facebook, LinkedIn, or via email at podcast at activemotif.com, and we'll give you a shout-out in a future episode. For more great epigenetics content, check out the Active Motif blog at activemotif.com forward slash blog. Thanks for listening, and stay tuned.